And if you have your Bibles, you want to open up with me to 1 Corinthians 13. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. This is a very familiar passage. Uh, You've probably heard it at different weddings or in different places. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. And as you turn there, I want you to do a little thought experiment. So imagine that you're getting back on a plane for the first time in kind of the post-COVID era. So you're flying again, and you're a little anxious, a little nervous about all of the different uh, safety protocols, rules, regulations, and you kind of get in, you get settled into your seat, and uh, the seat is empty. And then you look up down the aisle and kind of come, come lumbering down the aisle is a guy about my size, And he's lumbering down with kind of all of the grace of a pregnant elephant. He's whacking into people with his gigantic bag. And then he looks at you, sees his seat, and you think, oh, great. Here we go, right next to me. Then he pulls open the top, and he takes off his huge bag, and he starts trying to jam it in. And he's like, what is wrong with this plane? My bag's not fitting. And then you're thinking, you know, it's no mystery. It's twice the size of the regulation carry-on. That's why it's not fitting. And then he finally crushes everything behind it and gets it slammed closed. And then he flops into his seat and kind of whacks into you. And they go, it's going to be a long trip. Then a few minutes into the trip, he starts banging on the LCD screen in front. And I kind of had the idea that if the touch screen is not working, the harder you press it, the more responsive it should be. So he starts banging into it. And then he starts hitting the light for the flight attendant. And he's like, hey, hey, can I get some help here? Something, something's wrong with my DVD player. Something's wrong with the entertainment center. And she, and she comes over and very apologetic, like, I'm sorry, sir, we actually had some problems, so our entertainment system uh, is not working. He's like, what? What, are you kidding me? Like, my whole plan for this trip was I was going to catch up on the Gilmore Girls. How am I supposed to make it if, you don't, if, you, if the entertainment center's not working? Well, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. Oh, never flying this racket again. Then a few minutes later goes by, and he's flopping and turning. He's like, I guess I'm going to have to try and take a nap. And he starts hitting the button. Hey, hey, can you bring me another pillow? I need another pillow. He's like, well, I'm sorry, sir. New regulations only each passenger gets one, and somehow you've secured four, so I can't, I can't give you another one. Well, what? Are you kidding me? I can't have another pillow. How do you expect me to survive this? Oh, I might as well just get off the plane. Just stop the plane. I can't sleep. A few minutes later pass, and it's time for the food service cart to come around. And then come around and start asking, you know, would you like chicken salad or would you like turkey? And he, uh, he says, no, I, I need vegetarian barbecue. I need the vegetarian barbecue plate. I clearly put that on my list of demands when I bought my ticket that I needed some uh, vegetarian barbecue. Do you have it? Do you have that for me? And the flight attendant says, well, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have that. I don't think that exists as a thing, but we, we don't have it. What? If you don't leave that, well, I mean, what, what type of racket is this place? And goes on complaining. Then a few minutes later, there's this loud explosion. The plane lurches. And then you hear the captain say, I need everyone to take their seats. Word comes back to you that there's engine failure in one of the engines. And they have to do evasive emergency measures to land. You know, in that moment, you think, all right, How important was the Gilmore Girls now? How important is the extra pillow now? How important is the vegetarian barbecue? 
And what we have in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is telling us that the love of God found in Christ Jesus, this is not just the pillow that's meant to make your bumpy ride through life a little smoother. He says the love of God in Christ Jesus, this is not the entertainment center that's just meant to make your boring journey through life a little more enjoyable. He says the love of God in Christ Jesus, this is not the emotional meal that's meant to meet your unique emotional dietary needs. But he says the love of God in Christ Jesus, this is the engine. This is the thing that makes it go. This is the thing that if you don't have this, you don't have anything. This is the most important reality in your life. And so for this Advent 2021, we're doing a series, a theme called The Wonders of His Love. And what we want to do is just dwell in 1 Corinthians 13, working off of the key reality, the core confession, that the greatest need I have this morning, the greatest need you have this morning is we need more of the love of God found in Christ in our life. That's our greatest need this morning. The greatest need that our world has is not for social alterations or economic advancement or health-related conditions to change. Our greatest need is more of his love in our life, more of his love for my wife, more of his love for my children, more of his love for his church, more of his love for my neighbor, more of his love for the lonely, more of his love for the lost, more of his love for those who are weak and weary. And so we're going to dwell in 1 Corinthians 13 because this is one of the best places to, to, to understand the transformative power of the love of Christ or the love of God in Christ that's meant to fuel fuel our life. So as we kind of do, what I want to do this morning is a couple things. I just want to get our bearings to 1 Corinthians 13 because we're jumping into it kind of fresh and just get a sense of where we are and then look at the structure. And then I've got three things I want you to see about how his love is better than. What is love better than? So first, just get our bearings of where we are. 1 Corinthians 13. You know, this is one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. Uh, it's very familiar. It's often read, but it's seldom understood. And even, even more rare is for it to be believed and practiced and lived. So let's just read the chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Or another way to translate that resentful is it keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails or never ends as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, you've probably heard this passage before in the context of, of marriage ceremonies. I was looking back through my notes and uh, have about 35, at least, uh, marriage ceremony you know, manuscripts that I've, I've done and always give the bride and groom the opportunity to pick out the passage that's most meaningful uh, to them. And I was looking, there's about 28-ish of the 35 had chosen 1 Corinthians 13. And one of the, you know, the obvious kind of, application is that it's such a beautiful, one of the most beautiful uh, things ever written in antiquity. But one of the kind of humorous ironies about it is it's not about marriage. Actually, 1 Corinthians, the whole book, the way the book is structured is Paul is dealing with very specific issues that that church in Corinth was wrestling with and just moves with different issues. First major issue is the nature of the gospel and the relationship to factions that are coming among with different leaders. And then the second major block of issues actually is marriage and sexuality. And then the third major block... <coughs> is um, with uh, how to live faithfully in a very pagan, hostile world. And then the fourth major block is about the way they order and structure their worship service. How, what do they do when they gather publicly? And interesting enough, 1 Corinthians 13 is not in the marriage section. It's in the worship section. It's in the section that's trying to help them deal with the fact that they are, a, they are amongst a group of people that are being very contentious with one another, that are having a really hard time getting along. It's, a, it's how do you deal with a group of self-centered, self-interested people who are contentious and divisive. So in one sense, it's more applicable than a wedding ceremony. It's how you live in a world around difficult people. How do you get along with difficult people? And that's why setting up this whole chapter, Paul says, let me show you a more excellent way. So that's the, that's the context. Now quickly, the structure, just verses 1 through 3, focus on the necessity of love. It's necessity. And then verses 4 through 7 go into its character. What love is and what love is not and then 8 through 13 go through the permanence and how it's the greatest gift and the ultimate thing that will remain when all else has passed away. So as we set it up, you know, verses 1 through 3, let's look at that this morning. And what I want to think about is notice what Paul tells you this love is better than. His love is better than life. And what is it better than? And what we're going to see is that the ordinary, kind of ordinary gift of love is better than things like extraordinary worship. It's better than extraordinary wisdom. And it's better than extraordinary works. So what is love better than? And look at verse 1 through 3. You notice this cycle of if I, if I, if I, if I speak with tongues of men's and angels, if I have prophetic powers, if I have all faith, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body, if I... And then there's conclusion, if I do these things but don't have love, then I am. I am a noisy gong. I am nothing. I gain nothing. So think about that first thing. The, the gift of ordinary love 
is better than extraordinary worship. Notice verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So the broad context is worship gathering, as they gather to worship. And there's two types of speech that he's going to highlight. Notice if I speak in tongues of men and of angels. So speak... speak incredible speech, and in essence, great singing. So this is kind of oratory and music. So as you come into the place and you have this worship that has the most incredible, compelling, powerful, charismatic, life-changing, wow speech, and then the kind of worship that just lifts you up and carries you off into the wings of angels. You feel like I've been drawn up into heaven itself. It says, even if I have that type of power and skill, but don't have love... I'm nothing but a noisy gong and clanging cymbal. Now, it may be hard for us to kind of contextualize as we think about, all right, what's he talking about, this this power of speech? We have to remember that in first century world, rhetoric, the ability to speak powerfully and persuasively was a spectator sport. You know, in this world, there are not opportunities for social advancement. For the most part, whatever social class you were born in, that's what you were. You were stuck. There were no opportunities to rise. You actually could fall really quickly, but you couldn't rise. And uh, there's one kind of pathway. And this is worth thinking as we think about coming off Thanksgiving. Like, what are we thankful for? We actually live in a society where a social advancement is very possible. And it's a wonderful thing to be thankful for. In this world, it wasn't. And, but one of the few pathways where you could rise socially was to become skilled, a skilled rhetor, rhetoric. You become skilled at making speeches because that was a spectator sport. People would come. It's very similar to, it's similar to our entertainment where either athletes or like actors or musicians, it's the same type thing. So you can even look at like St. Augustine. He was, uh, his parents knew that he was born with incredible uh, felicity with language. And so they poured all of their resources to try and get him so he could rise. And you look at the Olympic Games, whether it was the, the ones that came out of Greece or the Ithmian Olympic Games, like the, the core of the entire game would be this special, it's like an enconium where someone would, uh, this great uh, rhetor would stand up and give a speech celebrating the emperor celebrating Caesar. And that was like the highlight of all of the games. Kind of similar to how our Olympic games now, kind of the the highlight, the moment, uh, the biggest kind of production moment is the opening ceremonies. But it would be based around someone's speech. And I just wonder, you know, it's kind of interesting. I wonder if subtly Paul's not flexing a little bit right here. Because part of the critique that the Corinthian church is making of him is he's so unimpressive like he comes and he doesn't like he doesn't speak well he doesn't he he all he does is he just talks about the cross and he's so rhetorically unimpressive and so actually for this short chapter he kind of peels back the curtain and this is one of the most beautiful poetic passages in all of ancient literature and i just wonder if there's not a subtle little all right you want to see it <laughs> here it is and uh it's just beautiful Uh, speech. Now notice what he says, but even if I can do all of that, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm just a gong or a clanging cymbal. Gong, don't think like big round, like gong. Gong was basically, you'd think microphone. 
This is first century microphone. So you would have like this metal or brass kind of thing where a speaker or someone who's delivering a public oration would speak into and you, you could hear it. So saying, if I, even if I can speak the most amazing words to keep people spellbound, I don't have love, I'm just a gong. I'm an empty vessel projecting empty words. And then the symbol is the key to the, you know, to the music. So what's he saying here? You know, for the church, the application is even if you can have the most amazing worship experience, the kind of thing that like Bono or Drake or Taylor Swift would look at, oh, that's, that's amazing. You can have all of that, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. It's just noise. But for us personally, just you personally, one of the things that remark is remarkable is Paul is highlighting one of the most sought-after social ambitions of his age. Like, this is the kind of thing, like, this was your path to make it, to being famous, to being an influencer. And Paul's saying, you can have all of that, and if you don't have love, you're nothing. You can have all of the skills that everyone in your culture prizes, but if you don't have them, you have, and you have to kind of fear the, feel the force of the three, I am nothing. I gain nothing. So even the most extraordinary worship without love, ordinary love, is worthless. But notice the gift, the second gift that he highlights in verse 2. There's this, if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith... You know, there's three elements here of all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith. And what he's highlighting here is if you have the, the wisdom, the, the, the leadership ability to be able to see and discern a situation and a problem and to be able to solve it or to be able to rally a group of people to rise up and accomplish something remarkable. You know, on the one hand, I wonder if there's not an element, because on the one hand, he's tacking like that ambition to be somebody to be like this public celebrity who people look at and cheer for. And not everybody wants that. In fact, even that idea for some of you gives you like, you break out in cold sweats. But this is getting at another ambition, the ambition to be wise, to be the smartest in the room, to be able to solve any problem that comes your way. And I actually think in our world, what we need is kind of less influencers and more people with these kind of gifts, more people with wisdom. These are kind of ruling characteristics. What would make a king a great king in the ancient world and what would make any leader in our world an excellent leader that can unravel any problem? Wisdom, faith. You know, it's kind of the dynamic of they can solve all mysteries and then they have the faith to bring it about, to accomplish incredible things. So in the church, it's kind of like you have the kind of life-changing power of, of, of vision and speech and leadership capacities. But even personally, just think about, uh, you know, the desire to become like the ultimate leader. Think of somebody like an image of this kind of paints a picture. Somebody like Steve Jobs has incredible foresight and vision and brings about these things that can change the world. But what Paul says, even if you, you, uh, you ascend to that height, if you don't have love, you're nothing. You've gained nothing. And then notice the third thing that he highlights, and there's a series of uh, things that he, he will do. The gift of ordinary love is better. And what I'll say here, the third, is extraordinary works. And then notice, all faith, so as to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all I have... And if I deliver up my body to be burned, 
but have not love, I gain nothing. Originally in my outline, I kind of have faith here in the third one, but I think that idea of all faith fits structurally better, you know, with the second one, with wisdom. But the idea of, you imagine having all faith, this incredible faith or mountain-moving faith where you have something that you see and you believe can be accomplished and then you rally and you fight and you bring it about and you move mountains. You know, in one sense, Paul had experienced that. The fact that the Corinthian church was even there was an an illustration of miraculous faith and unbelievable power of God. So here's someone who can overcome any obstacle and build the most impressive thing. This is not love, I have nothing. But then notice, if I give away all I have. So kind of three things here is if I give away all I have, so have all faith to move mountains, then give away all I have, and then deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, then I'm nothing. You know, if I give away all I have, you know, it's kind of remarkable. You think, all right, he's painting a picture. First, you have kind of this image of a person who, in one sense, all of the things that a culture would value to make a celebrity, they have it all. And then often when you have this incredible celebrity, it often is not married with um, absolute, total generosity. And he's saying that here's someone who has, has been able to build the most impressive and amazing thing, and yet they didn't do it for their own recognition. They didn't do it as an illustration of their own ego you know, uh, exaltation. Even in the midst of these incredible accomplishments, they have given away everything. This is staggering. You know, like, is it really possible to give to others and not love them. He said, I, if, if I give away everything, all I have, but don't have love, I've, I've gained nothing. So Paul's painting a picture of the most generous person you know, and yet it's all for naught. It's incredible gifts that they give, great gifts, but then also great suffering. Notice, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, and it's, is it really possible to give of your life in such a way where it, it's burned and then yet you're not loving? You know, I love the contrast here. It's almost like, you know, in some situations, it's, it's kind of easy. So the first picture is someone who gives of their material resources, all of them. And then here's a picture where they combine that with not just giving of their material resources, they give of their body. You know, it's almost like sometimes we say, you know, put your money where your mouth is. So you, you talk a good game, but put your money where your mouth is. Well, here's somebody who's put their mouth where their money is. They're not just giving of their resources. They actually give their whole self to be burned. Incredible suffering. But Paul says, without love, they've gained nothing. And it's staggering, it's shocking, this picture that he's painted, because honestly, if this wasn't in the Bible, we just wouldn't believe it. We wouldn't believe that you could accomplish all of those things and be that generous and that sacrificial and be that loving to others, and it's nothing. I think maybe if Paul was writing something like this today, he might paraphrase it or riff and say, you know, if I, if I appear on television but have not love, I'm just a talking head. If I can appear before sold-out shows and arenas, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I have the power to heal the sick, but don't have love, I'm more sick than my patients. If I can lead with all wisdom and skill, but don't have love, then we're going nowhere. 
If I dedicate my life to global peace but have not love, I'm just a controlling imperialist. And then you look at this and you think, all right, if, if there's somebody who's given all of they have and they've spoken with tongues and angels, they've done all these things, you know, what hope is there for me? I've never conversed with angels. I haven't moved mountains. Even the best things we do are tainted with uh, lack of love. And one of the things we're going to see here is you actually can't work this up from your own heart. This, is not st- the, this type of love is not something you can just manufacture or generate. So over the next four weeks, our kind of invitation to us is let's journey through these passages. And what we want to see is who exhibits this kind of love and then how can we experience it in such a way so that we can then express it to others. One of our key ideas is that before you can express the kind of love you see here, you have to experience it from him. And notice one of the key shifts from verse 3 to verse 4. Up until verse 3, it's all I. If I, if I, I am, I am, if I, if I. And then it shifts in verse 4, and then there's another person, another thing that comes onto the stage, and it's love is. Love is. It becomes personified. There's a new picture. And what we'll see is before we can express this kind of love to others, we have to experience it from him. Before we ever actually can become patient, we have to know and experience his patience for for us. Before we can truly become kind, we have to experience his kindness for us. And we have to encounter and experience the way he is the one who actually has borne all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and never fails. You know, we have to look at him, and he's actually the one who really did speak with the tongue of men and angels. And yet he did so from a place of profound and deep love. No one has ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees send the guards to go capture Jesus and they want to, they don't do it. And they come back and they say, what what are you doing? They said, no one has ever spoken like this man. And when people were leaving him and the disciples were tempted to leave and Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. We've never heard words like this. And not only were they the tongue of men and angels, but they were fuel-filled, saturated with the love of God. And he understands all mysteries, has all prophetic powers. As we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, I think one of the biggest ways that shaped my my thinking is I honestly don't think I took serious enough Jesus' actual teaching. As we encounter him and how profound he is from a perspective as a teacher, these are words of life. I think Jesus might have been the smartest man ever to live. And we would do very well to listen to him. And these, he understands all mysteries and has all prophetic powers and has all faith. And yet it's fueled and fused with the love of God. And then notice he, the faith he had to move mountains. And what did he do with his body? He delivered it up. You know, he gave away all that he had. He had equality with God, but considered it not something that he was going to hold on to. But he stepped out of heaven. He made himself a servant and he took on the form of a servant and was obedient even to the point of the cross. He gave it all up. He delivered his body to be burned and consumed as he bore the wrath of God in our place. And in love, he did it. And so what did he gain? 
He gained a name that is above every other name. And now at that name, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And at that name, there is no other place where we can find salvation at that name. And what else did he gain? He gained purchased. He purchased for himself a bride that is going one day to be spotless and pure and holy and without blemish. So if you want to know what real love is, this is where you look. We have nothing that we need more than the love of God found in Christ where we behold him. You know, we think about the images that our world holds up as this is the images of beauty. This is the images of real love. In one sense, this, this isn't just a marriage, a wedding passage. You know, if you want to see what real love looks like, don't look at the radiant new bride's white, beautiful dress. You look at his broken body. You want to see images of love, don't look at a dozen red roses. Look at his red blood. If you want to see images of love, don't look at Cupid's arrows. Look at the nails from Calvary. This is grown-up love. And he loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to keep us that way. And it's his love that will transform us. So as we transition into our time of communion, we think that God so loved the world that he gave his son and his son so loved us that he gave himself and he gave us this memorial, these images, these tokens that demonstrate and display his love for us in the most simple, in the most ordinary, but in the most beautiful and transformative way. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said this simple Ordinary, everyday loaf of bread is an image of my love for you because just as we break this bread, my body will be broken for you. And it's broken so that you can be made whole again. Then he took the cup. He said, this cup, this wine glass, it represents my blood that's shed for you. And it's shed for the forgiveness of sins. And it's forgiveness that becomes the pathway by which my love and the love of God in Christ can be poured out to you. So take the remembrance of him. So Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the indescribable gift of your love that was given to us through your son on the cross. And we ask that you help us to know it and need it. We ask that you help us. We confess that our greatest need right now is more of your love in our life. So confessing that, we rejoice that you freely and generously and lavishly give the things that we desire. So now we pray and we ask and we pause and we take a moment just to lift up all of the different many situations that we find ourselves in in this moment, confessing to you our need and ask that in every one of those situations, your love would be poured out so that we can feel your presence and power. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.